Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Canal chaos. The Suez remains blocked as efforts resume to refloat the stuck ship, uh, blocking out a critical uh, passway. Branding boycott. More Western firms face backlash in China over Xinjiang comments. And dose debate. EU leaders argue over export bans and vaccine supplies. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. Let's begin with a look at the markets. U.S. stocks look set for a mixed open. Tech is looking soft, but the Dow and the S&P are set to build on Thursday's late session gains. The small cap Russell 2000 was Thursday's big winner, up more than 2 percent. Financials look set to rise for a second day after the U.S. Federal Reserve gave them the green light to raise dividends and resume buybacks if they pass upcoming stress tests. U.S. oil majors higher pre-market, too, on concern that oil shipments could be impacted for weeks due to the stuck container ship in the Suez Canal. Green arrows in Europe as well, with oil majors there also on the rise. Asia had a particularly strong session with most of the major indices rising more than one and a half percent. Chinese tech giant Xiaomi uh, rallied six percent in Hong Kong trading on news of an electric car making partnership. Let's get right to the drivers now and the latest from the Suez Canal. A major dredging operation is underway to dislodge the massive container ship that has blocked the canal since Tuesday. After failed attempts to refloat the Ever Given yesterday, dredgers are working to remove enough sand and mud from around its bow, that's the front of the ship, to fill eight Olympic swimming pools. John Defterios joins me live now. Uh, you know, I would say this is a traffic jam, to say the least, blocking other ships, causing critical supply chain issues. I would imagine there is a desire to move on this quickly. What are you hearing from uh, the Canal Authority about the progress of moving this ship? Well, we're in day four, Allison, and they clearly want to try to pick up the pace here. That's the message that's coming out of the Suez Canal Authority. In fact, they've even put a number on it saying it's 87% of their target, which is 20,000 cubic meters. They did not, however, uh, set a timeline. And we're starting to get more data coming in about the number of uh, vessels or ships that are stacked up at the north and south entrance. Uh, the latest count as of today, 10 a.m. Uh, Egypt time, was 239. And then the folks from Refinitiv were in touch after one of our reports and said, look, this could swell by another 100 vessels uh, by Sunday if it's not solved. So we're going to be looking at more than 300 ships uh, that are looking for a place to go. We also know that there's some uh, vessels that are rerouting already. Uh, we have a count of 11 that would combine both container and energy ships going eastbound to Asia and then around the uh, Cape of Good Hope for those going to Europe and the United States. This is where the extra costs come into place. And, and we know that the canal, we say it's an artery for global trade, and 30% of uh, container traffic in the world represented right there uh, at the Suez. Uh, it represents $400 million an hour of the value of the goods that are not traveling through the canal, or nearly $10 billion a day. Uh, that's from Lloyd's List. And it's an extraordinary number. It gives you a sense of what we take for granted in the world and what happens when you have a ship that gets lodged in diagonally and blocks that artery. 
Yeah, it's just amazing. And the pictures are amazing, too. You know, you wonder, does Mother Nature have a potential role in this whole effort to move this ship? Well, I'm glad you flagged it because I've been speaking to, uh, to some shipping executives in the last uh, 48 hours. And one said, look, let me send you the tide report uh, because we're watching it very carefully. I said, OK, what are you talking about? And when you actually open it up, uh, sure enough, March 28th is high tide, a seasonal high tide taking place in the Suez. They think this is the best opportunity to assist what the Suez Canal Authority is trying to get done here uh, with the salvage companies. Uh, dredging away. I think it was misleading to see that uh, one backhoe that was trying to dig next to the gigantic uh, vessel, uh, but they've been dredging at a pretty fast pace. Uh, and now we have these mixed messages, which I think is fascinating coming through. Uh, the owner of the vessel, Shoyu Kinsen, had a press conference today in Japan, and the senior managing director said, we're hoping to refloat the vessel by Saturday evening Japan time, which is quite interesting. And then we hear from the Dutch salvage company, the CEO who's been pretty dour, very straightforward, pretty dry with his comments, saying uh, a quote from him, uh, it looks like the vessel to me is stuck rock solid. Those were his first impressions. And again, the shippers were saying, if we don't get this solved one week in, which would be next Tuesday, it's shipping rates, container rates that skyrocket. Oil prices, again, they were down uh, in the last 24 hours, but they're back up better than 2%, as you were suggesting uh, in your lead right now. And the final point is, there must be the truth somewhere in between. The authorities pushing to get this done. They got the salvage companies on the, on the mend here and pushing as aggressively as possible. Uh, we have the shipping company obviously wants to solve it as the owner. And the salvage companies say, let's try to manage expectations. It's not going to happen just overnight. At least we don't think so, is the word right now, Allison. Who knows? Maybe March 28th is the day when the tide is going to help. We shall see. John Devterios, thanks for all that great context. More Western brands facing a boycott in China over their stance on forced labor allegations in the cotton-producing region of Xinjiang. Companies including Burberry and New Balance now also caught up in the backlash after H&M, Nike and Adidas came under fire. Claire Sebastian joins us live with the latest. Claire, great to see you. You know, the backlash against Western companies is just growing and growing. Walk me through why this matters to these brands. Yeah, Alison, this is definitely spreading Burberry now, the first luxury brand uh, to become embroiled in this. They have lost a celebrity endorser. Uh, They have been removed from a popular game. There was even this tweet uh, from a Hong Kong lawmaker. I think we can uh, see that saying, I will stop buying or using Burberry products until Burberry has retracted or apologized for its unfounded allegations against Xinjiang, looking somewhat nostalgically at her own Burberry products uh, in the picture. But this matters because China is such a huge market for these companies. You know, H&M has more than 500 stores there. That's second only to the United States. Nike, it it accounts for about one fifth uh, of all their sales. Burberry, the most exposed of all, don't forget luxury in China is is just booming compared to the rest of the world. They, this accounted for about 40% Asia Pacific of Nike, of Burberry sales pre-pandemic. That number probably only going up given that China was the only major economy to grow last year. So a lot at stake here. Uh, And this, as I said, isn't dying down. It's created a very delicate balancing act for these companies. You know, we have seen this many times where Western brands face all this backlash, um, similar backlash over political issues in China. Do you think this is just the cost of doing business there? Is this how these companies uh, view this situation? You know, I think to an extent, yes, we have seen this in the past. We saw a couple of years ago, for example, companies like Marriott and Delta and Zara publicly apologizing and walking back 
sort of seeming missteps over how their websites characterized Taiwan and Hong Kong. But I think this is getting harder because this issue with Xinjiang, even though these statements were made months ago and, and don't seem to be the trigger uh, for what's happened here, this is much more difficult for these companies because we're talking about something that, you know, the US government has characterized as, as genocide. Sanctions were imposed over it uh, just this week. They cannot walk back these statements. So they have to tread a very delicate balancing act. But, you know, we've seen this in the past, a huge wave of, of sort of manufactured online outrage and then it has died down. So, you know, we wait and see, but this is this is probably the trickiest one they've had to navigate. All right, Claire Sebastian, thanks so much for your reporting. And they may be face to face over a conference call, but will European leaders see eye to eye on day two of their COVID-19 summit? The big talking point is the issue of restricting vaccine exports, something the French president supports. But Austria's leader says vaccines need to be more fairly distributed within the EU itself. Nick Robertson is on this story and joins me live. Nick, great to see you. You know, this is a summit that so far has descended into squabbles, but there is a serious crisis here of infections surging across Europe. What is going to come out of this? That's the driver for for the EU leaders. Um, They're not united on their position because some of them feel that they're suffering more than others. You know, France is another is is just one of a number of European Union countries that has had to go into deeper lockdowns. The French president has said that the EU really didn't act uh, fast, fast enough at the beginning. But but he certainly supports the position of taking control, better control of the vaccines produced in Europe. Uh, Part of the, the concern for sort of European Union chiefs is that they see their nations um, as as a significant exporter of vaccines, yet those nations are suffering, uh, they feel, uh, while near neighbours like the UK are doing very well with rolling out vaccines. You know, head-to-head numbers, the UK is about 47 per 100 people, the European Union varies 15 to 14 to 13, uh, depending on which country exactly per 100 people. So there's the difference. And the focus and the and the expectation of citizens of the European Union is that their leaders will look after them too. So that's the pressure here. So you have the internal issue and the external issue. And the external issue, there were proposals um, by the EU leadership to uh, to control very firmly exports. Proportionality. If a country outside the EU is doing better than you in vaccinations, then keep the vaccines. Don't ship them there. The UK could have fallen into that. Reciprocity. If the other nation isn't allowing vaccines or vaccine key components into the uh, to be exported to the European Union, then don't export to them. Now, the EU didn't agree on that, principally because some of the big um, pharma producing nations within the European Union, Netherlands and Belgium, just didn't support those firm measures because they figure it will impact and hurt their GDP down the line. Um, Internally, yes, big squabbles there too. You had the Austrian Prime Minister Sebastian Kurz pushing the case for Austria to get a bigger share of the European Union's slice of vaccines, wanted it for Croatia and the Czech Republic as well. And he was told by the Dutch Prime Minister and the Germans, um, actually, you're not doing so badly. So, uh, you know, again, this is very typical for the European Union. 27 different nations, different agendas, common need but different agendas to get there, difficulty to coalesce around um, some very key points. All right, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. 
And here in the U.S., big tech has been facing big questions as the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter and Google were pressed on what role their platforms may have played in January's riots at the U.S. Capitol. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg seemed to dodge the issue of who was to blame. I want to start by asking all three of you um, if your platform bears some responsibility for disseminating disinformation related to the election and the Stop the Steal movement that led to the attack on the Capitol. Just a yes or no answer. Mr. Zuckerberg. Chairman, I think our responsibility is to build systems that can help. Mr. Zuckerberg, I just want a yes or no answer, okay? Yes or no, do you do you bear some responsibility for what happened? Congressman, our responsibility is to make sure that we build effective systems okay, to help fight the Okay, the general is not to answer the question. No yes or no there. Donnie Sullivan, Doni Sullivan rather, is on the story. Donnie, uh, great to see you. You know, after watching uh, this circus, what really came out of this hearing? Yeah, listen, I think you sort of saw it there. Yesterday's hearing was pretty frustrating for everybody involved. It was frustrating to watch because nothing was really achieved. It was frustrating for the lawmakers because, as you saw there, Zuckerberg and the other um, tech executives had no interest whatsoever in acknowledging sort of any responsibility or culpability in the misinformation that spread on their platforms ahead of the insurrection that helped fuel that insurrection. Um, and then from the tech executives' point of view, you know, the, all the companies put forth uh, some ideas, especially Facebook and Twitter, uh, to uh, reform uh, regulation of social media in in this country. Um, and we actually saw Jack Dorsey tweeting during the hearing his frustration. Uh, somebody tweeted that uh, they wish that um, the lawmakers would engage Dorsey on the some sort of substantive issues. And he tweeted during the hearing, agree, that he agreed with it. So, uh, not not much uh, achieved at all whatsoever, but it was, of course, a very uh, important hearing because it was the first time we heard from those executives since the insurrection and getting them on the record. Joni, what kind of regulation do you see coming? Well, there are the, the the funny thing is is that I guess Republicans and Democrats want to do something about big tech. They want to regulate it in some ways. The problem is is that they want to do very very different things. Democrats essentially want to have more uh, moderation that these companies take responsibility for what is on their platforms, whereas most Republicans want uh, less uh, moderation. And we saw uh, President Don- former President Donald Trump calling for uh, the removal of what is called Section. 230 of the Communications Decency Act here in the US, which basically allows companies to have whatever uh, is on their platforms that they are not liable for what people uh, post on their platforms. So we could potentially see a change in that law, although we have heard in the past few weeks and the past week, actually, that the former president, President Trump, is talking about looking into starting up his own social media platform. So how that might change his views on regulation uh, of this area, of course, will be will be one to watch. Oh, to be continued. Donnie O'Sullivan, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. South Korea's president is calling for renewed efforts at dialogue with the North in the wake of Pyongyang's latest ballistic missile launch. This as North Korea talks up the results of Thursday's launch. Paula Hancock has more. 
North Korea says that Thursday's launch was successful and it was in fact a newly developed projectile. They've released images of this, which clearly experts around the world are pouring over to find out exactly what kind of weapons technology it was. Now, the early indication is that it was in fact a new kind of short range ballistic missile. Uh, now, Kim Jong-un had said that uh, he had uh, unveiled a number of new weapon systems at recent parades. He had said that he wanted to test them. Uh, but interestingly, he wasn't actually at this uh, this launch himself. Quite often, Kim Jong-un is, is front and center at these successful launches. And you can see him celebrating uh, with the weapons experts around him. He wasn't at this particular one, but it was said that uh, they had a, quote, newly developed new type tactical guided projectile. Now, it was enough to get the attention of clearly everybody in the region, but also the US President Joe Biden. In fact, the uh, the NIS, the spy agency here in South Korea, believed the timing uh, was to be just before Before Joe Biden's first press conference to make sure uh, that North Korea was talked about and to make sure uh, that it was back as a priority for Washington. Now, at that press conference, the US President was asked, uh, is North Korea once again a foreign policy priority and issue uh, as it was as the uh, former president, U.S. President uh, Obama left office and and told uh, former President Donald Trump it was one of the main issues. And Joe Biden replied yes. So once again, Pyongyang making sure that it is a priority. Now, we could be just a week away from the uh, the North Korean uh, policy review that the U.S. Biden administration has been undergoing for the past couple of months. Everybody waiting to see what that policy will hold. But for now, President Biden said uh, that there would be responses if North Korea does continue to fire ballistic missiles, also pointing out, though, uh, that they are still open to diplomacy. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Brazil reporting more than 100,000 new coronavirus cases in a single day as the country staggers under the impact of the pandemic. The country also reported nearly 2,800 new deaths Thursday. Neighboring Peru and Venezuela are both reporting surges driven by the variant first identified in Brazil. At least five people are dead in the U.S. state of Alabama after a wave of tornadoes moved through Thursday. Five states were hit by the storms, which caused heavy property damage. More than 20 tornadoes were reported in the region. Alabama alone saw 14. Still to come on First Move, as ships start to divert away from the blocked Suez Canal, we have the latest from Egypt. And Everlywell was one of the pioneers of at-home coronavirus testing. Its CEO joins me to discuss its future beyond the pandemic. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set for a mixed open as we wind down the last full trading week of the first quarter. It's been a volatile week on Wall Street with investors unable to commit to economic reopening stocks or tech. The next big market catalyst could come from Washington as investors gauge the appetite for new federal spending. President Joe Biden, in his first formal White House news conference yesterday, said he will unveil his new stimulus proposals next week. The next major initiative is, and I'll be announcing it Friday in Pittsburgh in detail, is to 
rebuild the infrastructure, both physical and technological infrastructure of this country, so that we can compete and create significant numbers of really good paying jobs. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said in congressional testimony this week that taxes would have to be raised to pay for the new spending. Joining me now, Greg Valliere, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Great to see you, Greg. Likewise. Good to see you. All right. So let's talk about this infrastructure priority for President Biden. It's massive. It's ambitious. Um, and it's got a massive price tag as well. well. Talk me through what you think he's going to get with this, what he won't get, and whether or not Republicans are going to play along. I think he's got a real problem, Allison, and that is I'm not sure he has the votes. You're absolutely right. It's a massive amount of money, at least $3 trillion, a huge amount of new taxes. And I, I don't think he has all 50 Democrats, which is mandatory if he just wants to get to a tie that's broken by Kamala Harris. So he's looking at changing the filibuster rule. But even that would still leave him potentially short a Democrat or two. So this is high stakes the next few weeks. We'll see what the reaction is. But as of now, I don't think he has the votes. What about mimicking the approach he took on passing the $1.9 trillion stimulus package? Uh, he used reconciliation. That's a parliamentary process that would shield it from the Senate yep. filibuster and allow it to pass with Democratic uh, votes alone. Well, yes, but what if one or two Democrats defected? That's that's the issue. And I think uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia in particular is leery of a price tag this high. And I think it's going to take some convincing. I mean, Biden can still negotiate a, a deal. I don't totally rule it out. But the enormity of the tax hikes they're talking about, I think, will be difficult to get through Congress, has will three trillion dollars worth of infrastructure. How do you think the uncertainty with this bill will affect Wall Street? Well, that's a really great question. I think that for the markets, we all knew we were going to get around $1.9 trillion. I mean, that was a fairly easy call. This is not as easy a call. It's entirely possible that he'll get half a loaf. It's entirely possible he might not even get that much. And I think for the financial markets, it's going to be a source of real uncertainty. And as you and I know, markets don't like uncertainty. Yeah, they especially don't like higher taxes. And, uh, you know, the top corporate tax rate is almost certain to rise with this thing from 21 percent to 25 percent. Um, that could certainly hit the markets. Yeah, I mean, if it's just 21 to 25, I think the markets can live with that. Biden is talking about 28. Uh, Bernie and others are talking about big new taxes on foreign uh, earnings of U.S. companies. Mm -hmm. uh, big tax changes on capital gains and on estate taxes. Th these are controversial proposals. I want to ask you quickly about the ship that's stuck in the Suez Canal. Do you think the markets are adequately yeah. pricing in what's happening there? This could be a month-long closure of the Suez Canal. This could really affect the supply chain that's already being strained by COVID. Yeah, two points. Number one, let's see next week. They might be able to make some progress. But the, the second point I'd make is we're getting close to the point where economic data GDP, durable goods, all these economic reports are going to be skewed. They're going to be affected by this uh, problem in the, the Suez Canal. So for the markets, it's going to be a complication. Yeah, this certainly could affect global GDP, and we will be watching it along with you. Great to talk with you, Greg Valliere, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. And the market open is next. 
Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. The opening bell is seconds away from ringing on Wall Street, and we're expecting a mostly higher start to the trading day. Energy and financial stocks moving higher. Uh, we're expecting to move higher in early trading, but uh, we're expecting to see techs uh, to remain flat, at least for the morning. But uh, tech's certainly on track for a losing week as bond yields tick higher again. A wild ride for Reddit favorite GameStop. Shares fell on disappointing earnings earlier this week, but they spiked more than 50 percent on Thursday and are expected to be up in early trading today. Meantime, new economic numbers show U.S. personal spending falling by a greater than expected 1 percent last month. Spending should pick up again soon as new stimulus payments arrive in bank accounts. The U.S. trade deficit ticked higher by 2.5 percent last month as well. The owner of the Ever Given, the container ship blocking the Suez Canal, says it hopes to refloat the ship by Saturday. Other vessels have started to detour away from the blocked waterway, which is one of the world's busiest. Dredgers are currently moving tons of sand from around the ship's bow. It has been wedged across the canal since Tuesday. Ben Wiedemann joins me now live from Cairo. Uh, Good morning to you. So, uh, you know, what are Egyptians saying about this critical passageway? Well, obviously the Egyptians and particularly the Egyptian government are eager to get this problem resolved as quickly as possible, keeping in mind that as much as $10 billion of trade passes through the Suez Canal every day. That's about $400 billion, $400 million an hour. Now, as you mentioned, the owner of the Ever Given is saying that they are hoping that by Saturday night, Cairo time, that the ship will be floated. And we did hear the chairman of the Suez Canal Authority, Osama Rabia, say that at this so far, the latest is that they've been able to dredge 17,000 metric meters, cubic meters, excuse me, of sand and whatnot from around the ship. Uh, They say that the job is 87% done. Once they've cleared as much as possible of that sand and other debris from around the ship, they are hoping by Saturday night to deploy two large tugboats to somehow work that ship free. Now, I think that's the optimistic expectation. We have heard other experts saying that it's going to take much longer to achieve that, but I think it's a given that the Egyptian government really wants to resolve this problem for economic reasons and for prestige reasons as well. The Suez Canal generates, uh, last year at least, around $5.6 billion in revenues for Egypt. And given we are in the age of corona with tourism down and whatnot, they need that money to be flowing and those ships to be sailing as quickly as possible. Ben, when this ship is moved, do you think that there's going to be an investigation to play for who, who or what is to blame and If the ever given is to blame, will there be a fine imposed? There's already talk about legal action being taken uh, because there's a lot of money involved. Keep in mind that this is one of the largest container ships in the world. So there's lots of people who are going to want answers. 
the Egyptian government as well. Now, it's important to keep in mind that for navigating through the Suez Canal itself, an Egyptian captain comes on board to steer the ship through. So they're going to be looking at the actions of the captain. And of course, you have to keep in mind the weather throughout the Middle East. I was in Beirut while this storm was coming through the region. The winds were very strong and it has been noted that with these containers stacked, I believe, as much as you know, nine or ten high above the whole of the ship, it acts as sort of a sail. And keep in mind that uh, since 1956, the width of the Suez Canal has been doubled, but the size of these ships is increasing all the time. So it's a, it's a challenge, but yes, obviously the Egyptians, for obvious reasons, are, warned, wanted, are going to want to get to the bottom of how this happened. Allison? Ben Weedman, thanks for all that great context. Thank you. To the crisis in Myanmar now and its military kills unarmed protesters. The U.S. and U.K. are targeting some of the junta's biggest income sources with sanctions on two of the holding companies controlled by the military. This is what human rights experts have been asking for, as Ivan Watson explains. The military in Myanmar is responsible for much more than the February 1st coup and ensuing crackdown against protesters. The military has also long been heavily involved in the business of making money. The military has a tentacle in almost every part of the Myanmar economy. Chris Sadati was a member of a United Nations fact-finding mission, which published a 2019 report on the economic interests of the Myanmar military. It concluded that the same generals who've been accused by the UN of committing human rights abuses against ethnic groups like the Rohingyas are also in charge of two of the biggest conglomerates in the country, Myanmar Economic Holdings Limited and Myanmar Economic Corporation. Today, MEC is one of Myanmar's leading conglomerates. Their portfolios include banks, oil and gas extraction, mining, ports, hotels, telecommunications, breweries, and even a golf resort. A separate 2020 report by Amnesty International exposed the unique relationship between individual combat divisions and the conglomerate MEHL. Almost every single top officer of the military holds shares in this large business conglomerate that's collecting profit and dividends. At the top of the pyramid, this man, Min Online, the commander-in-chief of Myanmar's armed forces. He declared himself ruler of the country during the coup of February 1st. But the UN report also identifies him as chairman of the patron group, part of MEHL's corporate leadership. He's essentially a business mogul in an army general's uniform. That unusual position highlighted at the 2018 launch ceremony for Mitel, a cell phone company joint venture between a Myanmar military-owned conglomerate and a telecommunications company owned by the Vietnamese military. Min Online shared the stage with Vietnamese top brass. At a press conference weeks after the coup, a military spokesman seemed to anticipate the hunter would face international criticism. He said sanctions are expected, and they've come from mainly Western governments. A new executive order enabling us to immediately sanction the military leaders who directed the coup, their business interests, as well as close family members. 
The Treasury Department targeted two adult children of Myanmar's top general, accusing them of benefiting, quote, from their father's position and malign influence. Washington also sanctioned the adult children's companies, including a restaurant, a media production company, and a chain of gyms called Everfit. Despite the sanctions, I can still access an app from Everfit on my iPhone's app store. I can also download another app called OCCDS, and that stands for the Office of the Commander-in-Chief of the Defense Services. It's basically a public relations media platform for Min Online, the military dictator of Myanmar. On the bloody streets of Myanmar's cities and towns, the death toll continues to grow. The military seeks to crush the popular uprising against the coup. The struggle over the future of democracy in Myanmar is also a battle over who will control the country's economy. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Up next, Home Testing's Everly Well joins forces with DoorDash and Tinder to deliver COVID-19 tests on demand. I'll be speaking with Everly Well's CEO. Belgium is the latest EU country to announce a new lockdown as a third wave of COVID-19 infections hits Europe. Cases are rising in 19 states. Europe's health commissioner called the situation alarming. India, too, is seeing a new spike in COVID-19 cases. Thursday was its third consecutive day of record infections this year. Meantime, U.S. President Joe Biden has doubled his vaccination goal for his first 100 days in office. The new target is 200 million vaccinations by April 30th. COVID-19 testing will remain key to overcoming the pandemic, even as vaccinations pick up pace. Self-testing company Everlywell was one of the pioneers of at-home coronavirus tests and is now working with companies like DoorDash and Tinder. Joining me now is Julia Cheek. She's the CEO and founder of Everlywell. Julia, great to see you. Thanks for having me, Allison. So now I guess you can order up a PCR test along with your pizza and get them the same day. Oh, well, wait, there's Tinder, too, so it means I can find a date as well. Walk me through how this works and where it's happening. Yes. So home testing is really moving mainstream. Um, We have just announced these partnerships with Tinder and DoorDash, and there are many other companies that are offering testing on demand, Um, not only COVID testing, but other testing like STI testing that can be relevant for people to do in their homes. Certainly the pandemic has really been this watershed moment for consumers to realize there's lots of different ways to get care, including testing. Um, And we expect that testing for COVID-19 will continue um, in in conjunction with the vaccines. And so I think this is not going anywhere. And if anything, people will continue to use this new way to get their health care from home. How difficult was it to get this COVID-19 home test approved by the FDA? I mean, there is a lot of room for error. I mean, you know, how do you really do that nasal swab? Um, there, there, there just seems to be uh, there could be just sort of a user error here. Uh, it's a great question. I think the what's been interesting about the last year is how much progress we've made in teaching people across the country how to uh, send in a saliva sample, how to do a really easy nasal swab. I think what's important to learn here is the swab is actually just about one inch into your nostril. Um, and it's actually the gold standard uh, PCR testing. And it's 
better quality when correlated with that very long swab that is very uncomfortable um, than any other sample type so far. And so the FDA has been really progressive in how they've been able to get a lot of different formats to market for people. Um, but ultimately, this test is uh, has is very high quality. It's over 97% accurate. And we know that for all of our labs that work with us, that they've been doing high quality COVID testing since the start of the pandemic. But you know, you'll start to see a lot of other tests come to market that the FDA has begun to approve, rapid tests in the home um, that you may be able to buy off the shelf of a, of a store very soon, um, as well as other types of antigen tests, antibody tests. I think we're really just on the forefront of what will happen with home testing across a number of different sample types and formats for COVID-19 and for other types of testing. And early in the pandemic, testing was so vital. Uh, you know, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there weren't enough tests. There was more demand. Now we're seeing people get vaccinated. Hopefully we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel for the pandemic. What does that mean for you in this business, this part of your business in supplying COVID-19 tests to households uh, when there may not be as much of a need? You know, this is a really exciting moment in digital health, and it's a new dawn in healthcare as we all emerge, hopefully, uh, with rapid vaccination programs. And we're really excited about it um, at Everly Well. We actually just announced that we acquired two uh, companies, a clinical telehealth network, PWN Health, and a home testing company um, that serves insurance plans called Home Access Healthcare. And, you know, we've been in this business for almost six years and have been building products um, and technology that makes diagnostics-driven care easy for people. Um, and and so in my view, this is really a new a new moment um, for everyone in digital health. The silver lining of the pandemic has been virtual care and just the explosion of virtual care options for people um, to reach underserved populations, to reach those who are under, underinsured. Um, and so I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see great progress beyond the pandemic um, and COVID-19 will become something that we manage uh, just like influenza. And I think that um, that is on the horizon. Are you seeing COVID-19 testing dropping off here in the U.S.? Certainly we are as people get more vaccinations um, and we, as we start to reach those levels uh, soon of potential herd immunity. And that obviously is the goal. However, we still will need rapid testing and PCR testing as people return to the workforce. So what we're actually seeing is a bit of a shift in the type of demand. People want to have comprehensive testing programs where they work, um, where vaccines may or may not be required. Um, and so you still need to be sure you're keeping your workforce safe and that people feel safe in the environment um, that they're in every day. Do we run the risk, I know that you offer more than 30 tests, do we run the risk mm -hmm. of playing doctor and stressing ourselves out and then, you know, we get our test result and then we have to go to the doctor and then incur a cost twice because inevitably the doctor is going to want us to retest. Does this sort of create this cycle? So what's so interesting about virtual care is that it moves the entire process into an end-to-end -end experience, both for testing and for the physician consult via telehealth. And so as an example of, of all of our tests and, and many other players in the space, uh, we're able to have full care from the physician all the way through to consult and treatment for things like STI testing, um, uh, Lyme disease testing, HPV, et cetera. And so our goal is actually to complete that care cycle so that you're moving 
moving the modality of how you get tested and treated into the home or really where it's convenient for people, where they live and work, in stores, at their employer, et cetera. Um, what's important, I think, is that people actually do the testing. We know that about 30% of lab tests that physicians order today just never get fulfilled by the patient. It's inconvenient. They don't know how much it will cost. They don't know how it's going to matter to their health. Um, and so for us, we really are filling that gap, and we think we're expanding the pie of people who do need to be tested from their doctors and not just having people come in and get tests that they maybe didn't need. Yeah, it's amazing to go on your website. It's like ordering from a restaurant menu or something, but not really. Anyway, Julia Cheek, CEO and founder of Everly Well. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Allison. After the break on First Move, it's been nearly 18 months since WeWork postponed its IPO. Now it's taking another stab at going public, this time through... You guessed it, a SPAC. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. And while most governments remain skeptical about the adoption of cryptocurrencies, some are venturing into cutting-edge financial experiments. John Defterios has the latest on Dubai's crypto ambitions in today's Think Big. The world's largest cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, hit another milestone this month when it surged to a record high of $60,000, a sign that digital currencies are becoming a growing force in the financial markets, garnering the attention of big banks and governments, with Dubai hoping to lead the way. Dubai has been always forefront on the adoption of digital technologies, right? There's a strong direction about bringing these new technologies and cryptocurrencies and blockchain uh, uh, technologies. The Emirate wants to become the world's epicenter for crypto investments, digitizing most government and private company transactions over the next few years. And the beating heart of the strategy takes place right here at the Dubai Multi-Commodity Center or DMCC. The idea is really to create a Dubai Tech Valley. A lot of it will be digital, but there will be also physical. The DMCC aims to provide a centralized and regulated platform that will manage all crypto-related activities in the city, preparing Dubai for the crypto age. It's going to happen. We're better off at least having the knowledge, and then when the time comes to utilize it, you have the tools at least. But like most new financial products, cryptocurrency comes with risks. Price volatility, hacking, security all need to be ironed out as the tech is being developed. There's a lot of question marks around, for instance, what will be the impact of cryptocurrencies into the banking system? It's absolutely unclear. For the DMCC, creating a safe environment for crypto companies is a crucial step to attract investments. Confidence, trust, and security. This will not be launched without uh, covering all bases. It's with these initiatives that Dubai wants to speed up the transition to cryptocurrencies hoping to be well-positioned by the time digital money becomes a mainstream presence in the global economy. John Defterius, CNN, Dubai. More than a year after its failed IPO attempt, WeWork is going public. It's agreed to a merger with the SPAC, BOEX. 
The deal values WeWork at $9 billion. It's a fifth of its valuation in 2019. And Paula Monica has been following this story and joins me live. Great to see you, Paul. So could this be WeWork's happy ending? I mean, it was already having trouble before the pandemic. And once the pandemic hit, its business model pretty much imploded. Yeah, obviously, uh, WeWork, like any company in the commercial real estate sector, had a lot of problems because of uh, people being stuck at home and not going into the office. The good news for WeWork is that after that botched IPO, we all remember the stories of Adam Newman and the uh, the problems at the company, SoftBank having to take a huge haircut on its investment. Things seem to have stabilized. They said that revenue, excluding China, which they're getting out of, was flat last year. They expect revenue to jump this year. And I think that's the reason to try and go public. Also, obviously, SPACs are all the rage these days. It seems like everyone is doing one. And, uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal is even involved in the company behind the uh, blank check firm that is now taking WeWork public. So just SPACs all over the place. And very quickly, everyone keeps on talking about whether or not SPACs are in this bubble, yet more more companies keep on joining in. Are we going to see this thing implode? Uh, I'm not so sure implode is the right way to say it, but clearly there is a lot of froth in the market and eventually you're going to see things cool off. I mean, there have been a couple of IPOs this week that had pretty cool receptions because I think investors are starting to be a little bit more discerning and realizing mm-hmm. that not every new going public, either through IPO or SPAC, is going to be worth their time and money. All right, Paula Monica, thanks so much for your reporting. And I'm Allison Kosick. Thanks for watching. Stay safe. Connect the World is next.